Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. And now we're going to tell you about another great podcast on the Osiris Network. Southern Songs and Stories is a documentary series on the artists, music, and culture of the South with interviews, songs, a good bit of history, and insights into how all of it fits together. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, inviting you to come explore the music of the South and the artists who make it on Southern Songs and Stories. Hey everybody, it's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 154. This is RJ. I'm here with Matt. What's up, Matt? Hey, hey, man. We are here to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about the most recent Live Fish release, which was 11-11-98 Van Andel Arena, um, which we have some thoughts on. There are songs on there. And jams. 
<laughs> jams. Songs and jams. Imagine that. Um, today, Brad and Jonathan are both um, not here, and we don't know where they are, but they are probably, I think they're at a Joe Biden rally um, that, the, together. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that was last night. Um, Jonathan told us that he was starting a Disco Biscuits podcast. Um, and so he's busy with that right now. And, um, Brad tried to be here, but, uh, he, we didn't save him correctly last time and we're trying to restore him from backup. So, uh, we'll see what we can do by next episode. Oh man, he's out there. He's in the ether. So we, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the documentary between me and my mind, which was premiered last week at the Beacon Theater. And we're going to talk about that release. And uh, Matt, I guess just one thing is that we should remind people about Big Cypress. Yeah, we uh, we said before that we were going to cap this at the end of April, um, which as you're hearing this, it's May 1st. So um, we're kind of wrapping things up there. But if you still have thoughts that you want to share, just get them over to us as soon as possible. That's um, BigCypress at OsirisPod.com. Um, remember, record yourself uh, sharing your story. Uh, send it over. We've gotten some good submissions recently. So um, people are into it and you'll either hear yourself in the episode or we'll ask you for a kind of a follow up if we really want to dig deep and uh, get some better sound bites from you. So um, send those over uh, our way as soon as you can. Yeah. And I would just say to, to expand a little on what we're doing, we, we just had a call last week where we sort of recommitted to our project and um, we're going to have multiple episodes with a ton of special guests and it's going to be like a multi-episode sort of, you know, narrative history of Big Cypress. So you should you should want to be included. It's going to be cool. It's going to be cool if you went and Matt and I didn't because we are not good at fish. Well, I mean, we're good at fish now, but you know, back then, <laughs> was back then, some some of us were teenagers. So <laughs> I was really bad at it in the fall of two thousand. Okay, so um, or ninety nine. Shit, 99. See, I don't even I don't even know what year it was. Jeez. All right. Matt, what, where, where should we go first on our adventure? So I want to hear from you about this documentary because I'm super jealous, uh, both as a fish fan and a huge, huge fan of music documentaries and biographies and whatnot. Uh, I'm dying to see this Trey documentary. You were lucky enough to be in attendance at the Beacon Theater and were one of the first people in the world to see it. So tell us about it. First off, like, what was it like seeing a, a film like at the Beacon Theater with a couple thousand people? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, I so I had never been to the Beacon before, so it was cool to finally be inside that place. Yeah, I was just one, I was just there for the first time a couple of months ago uh, to see Green Sky Bluegrass and Circles Around the Sun. Um, oh, nice! And like, a, it was a definite uh, bucket list venue for me to get to, knowing about all the legendary shows, Almond Brothers, and, and whatnot that have happened over the years. And um, I lo- I was impressed by how small it is. Like, you, I thought it was going to be this huge grand room, and for a theater, like compared to you know, like the Warner or the tower or something like that. It actually felt super intimate. Yeah, definitely. And that was, that's what was cool about this event. The, you know, it, it was a normal fish crowd, you know, it was, it was like, you know, all the same people you'd see at a fish show and everyone was in, in good spirits and the, the beer lines were long. And, you know, in, in that sense, it was like a normal fish crowd, but it was, it was crazy when the lights went down and people were, you know, sitting down to a movie there were like trailers that were like little advertisements for verizon and whoever else and oh, wow. it was it was just sort of like it was just a little strange um but the the filmmaker said something beforehand and then um i actually came down with beers while 
the guy was talking after the lights had gone down because I waited in line too long. And then I had to make Trey's dad stand up so I could get by him. <laughs> and, and then I stepped on uh, my friend's foot. And so it was, it was a good entrance for me, but, um, yeah, we, <laughs> I mean, in terms of the documentary, like it was, you know, it's obviously, uh, you know, a favorable, compelling portrait of, of a great musician and songwriter. There, there's nothing like nefarious about it, obviously. Right. It's not like a, rockumentary in, in that sense. It was very much like a, a personal look at Trey and, and the process. And at at the um, Tab show that started right after the premiere, which also is a really cool way to see a movie if you get to see a concert right after it. Yeah, sure. More, more people should do that. But he said that the, what piqued his interest about this project in the first place was that the the people who you know approached him him and uh, Patrick about it said, you know, fans have never seen, quote, the process. So I think they took this view of like, it was about the process, not necessarily only about Trey. So we, we can talk more about that. Cause I think there's some like parsing to do in terms of what they focused on and what they didn't in terms of Trey's life versus the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's interesting. I know I, I texted you right after the film cause you were kind of updating us on what you were seeing. And I think what I said right away, was like, all right, any, were there any bombshells or any, like, did we learn anything new or is it just kind of digging deeper into some of the things we might've known already? Yeah. And I think, um, the, I don't know if you saw the Thrillist article that Jordan Hoffman did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, I think that was the best, you know, he, he and Scotty B both did, uh, uh, summaries of the movie. So I feel like they captured the kind of like cool, funny stuff. You know what I mean? Um, there, there are a few things that I saw that I thought were particularly interesting in terms of like the, the theme. I mean, first of all, it was like, it was heartwarming. It was funny. It was informative. The humor that came through was was something that, you know, Tom has sort of told us about over time, you know, that humor is like what kind of drives the band. And you, you see that in the movie. Um, and I think overall, like if you like fish, you're going to come out liking fish more. And if you don't like fish or don't know about them, but have heard about them now that they're known as like a very successful 30 plus year band, you'd probably, you know, be intrigued to learn more. So that's cool in that sense. Yeah, it seems, and I say this having not seen it yet, but what I've read and what you've told me, it almost sounds like it's the kind of film that like, maybe I would like recommend it to my parents to watch that like, say like, Hey, like, I know you haven't completely understood like the music or anything like that, but this will give you like maybe some insight into like why we're so obsessed with this and why these guys are such interesting people. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. There was like a little montage at the beginning that showed like, you know, M uh, not MSG, but New Year's Eve 94 um, with the hot dog and like some like pictures of Trey wearing like crazy sunglasses and rocking out. But it was like it was not really about them and their history and their rock and roll adventures at all. It was about, you know, a, a 50 something brilliant songwriter artist who's like trying to, you know, just keep going, you know. Yeah. And so I'm guessing like based on everything that we talked about with Ghosts of the Forest on our last episode and, um, you know, some of the emotional weight of what Trey's been working on during this period, it, is the film kind of a downer because it, a lot of it takes place during that time or like is it is it like a nice compliment to what we were already kind of, you know, hearing from that music? Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, it's a good point. Uh, it was it was, it was balanced. I think there was like a lot of, like I said, humor and a lot of high points and a lot of like, you know, creative, you know, sort of takes on, on what Trey was up to and showing, showing behind the scenes stuff. But one, I guess one major theme is that like, and I don't know how much the filmmakers were like pushing this. It seemed like they were pushing it a little bit was like, Trey's a very good communicator in terms of music and about 
music, but but maybe not that great at communicating in interpersonal ways. Like there were a couple, you know, sort of awkward family conversations where they were talking about his past and when he was, you know, had when he had his troubles and stuff. And they like just a couple things that I thought were um, maybe a little heavy handed, but probably fair, like him talking to his daughter and him saying something like, yeah, but you guys all had, you know, there there weren't like tough times growing up. Right. And like, I forget which daughter it was, was like, uh, I mean, there were some tough times and he kind of just looks like, like it was almost like a sitcom. Like his face was like kind of a blank stare and it was like shit, you know what I mean? But there was uh, like, wow. it, and not, not, I don't think they were setting him up to look stupid or anything, but I think it's just like, that's how, that's like kind of how he thinks. And then he, he thinks about these things and communicating obviously through his music. Right. Um, so that was like very endearing. I think there was one scene where he was, this is a couple of different like themes. One thing that, that was communicated is how he kind of goes through the process of communicating with the members of the band, at least about new material. And he goes to Fishman first, gets him to kind of like, you know, give some input into soul planet. when he was talking about the new year's Eve gag from 2017 mm-hmm. and they're like, they show, you know, him and Fishman playing all these crazy instruments and, and, you know, having fun and laughing their asses off and joking and, you know, like having a blast. And then like right at the end, like his Trey's friend, Chris comes up and, and, you know, Trey's like, yeah, he has stage four cancer. And fish is like, what? I had no idea. Like, and he's like, Oh really? I didn't tell you that. Like shit. And then fish is like, yeah, wow, that's crazy. And he's like, yeah. And then it's just sort of like, it's clear that he's not, you know, processing that particular moment, um, very well, but just going full speed ahead on the music, which is where the gate, you know, Ghost of the Forest stuff comes in and that's like interspersed a lot as like the vehicle for which he's dealing with, you know, his, his grieving process, which I think is, I'm sure very accurate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I guess it kind of reinforces the idea of him being like a workaholic, um, which we've heard from a number of different places before and like really needing the music to kind of like keep himself focused and out of trouble and stuff. Um, did you, did you get the sense, like when you talk about him kind of glossing over that with Fishman or like the conversations with his family, do you think that that was like a glimpse into how he processes things emotionally? Or do you think any of it was affected by the fact that there were cameras there and maybe he was kind of like, don't talk about my arrest in front of the cameras. You know what I mean? Yeah, he I don't I think it's the former. I don't think he was really trying to avoid the topic. I mean, they had like kind of staged interviews with every member of his family, his two daughters, his wife, his mom and his dad. Okay. So those were all like set up, you know, with cameras, but they were all very open and frank conversations. It just seems like he is processing all this stuff via music, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and and it's it's seems totally in character based on what I know. Um but yeah, it was interesting. I mean, the they like sort of um, glossed over some of that stuff, but at the same time showed the musical side of it, which I guess is part of the point, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I was saying he went to Fishman to talk about the um, Soul Planet New Year's Eve gig, and then he like kind of got Fishman to, you know, go along with his plan, I think is the way I looked at it. Then he went to Paige separately, went to Paige's house and like, kind of got him to buy in while giving him some stuff to work on you know and then lastly went to mike and was like hey this is what you know fish and Paige and i have talked about and and you know sort of like giving them each things to 
figure out themselves, but kind of like, don't you think this idea is awesome? Um, and I thought that was really, he's like very persuasive in that situation in contrast with some of the other conversations they showed where it's like, that just wasn't, you know, the way he approached, um, interpersonal stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing was like, it was very ghost of the forest heavy. I, I was surprised actually, like almost all the songs that were featured were the works in progress and showed him in the studio, in the barn, um, and in different, different places working on that material. Um, which is cool. Cause that album is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool to get a, a view into some of those places that we don't always get to look at as well. Like we've seen little things here and there inside the barn, but it sounds like they spend some time in there and you get to kind of really see what it's like when they're, they're creating music in there. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think there was, you know, the, the ghost of the forest stuff was obviously weighing heavily on him, but he wasn't, I guess another way of looking at it is just that he wasn't really looking at it as a he, he was trying to figure out how to deal with it and, and wrote all this amazing music as a result. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's um, cool. So, so yeah. And there, there were a couple appearances of, of Chris Cottrell in the, in the documentary. There's a couple of great lines. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. A couple of really funny parts, which I won't give away, but like really just, they, they, it was an, it was a very intimate portrait of that whole, you know, thing and, and his relationship. And, one thing for people who listen to Under the Scales, I mentioned in the last episode that Trey had mentioned to me and Tom that he was working on like some composition that he was really fired up about um, when we talked to him last summer. And I think that was probably the Ghost of the Forest stuff. Because it. it was, okay. I think he saw it as like one long thing. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. Which I, I, that's the way I kind of received it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I referred to it as a rock opera when we talked last time. And I, I, I think that's kind of, I got the sense that he was approaching it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, the, you know, the the one thing about the band is just like they showed this shot of them, I think, after they were rehearsing for the New Year's shows in the barn and they're like eating lunch or, or dinner and they're just like all dying laughing about like and you can't even really understand what they're saying. Like Fishman's just like cracking up and talking and they're all just like laughing sort of at Fishman, but then they're like making other jokes and uh, according to Tom, at least that's like very much how it works. And they weren't even like, you know, it wasn't like someone told a joke and everyone laughed. It was just like this, like infectious, continuous laughter, which I think is such a uh, cool thing if, if, you know, 30 plus years in that they're still kind of in that situation. Yeah, that's that's particularly interesting. You're not the first person to mention that as kind of a key scene in the movie. And I was thinking about that um, GQ article uh, from a few months ago about the uh, Trey's sobriety and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he, he made a comment there that when he had to make a list of the things that he lost because of his issues, number one was sense of humor. And so it mm-hmm. sounds mm-hmm. like, like that was such a key component and getting that back was, was really key to making the band survive. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's just like that, that is, you know, the music and the humor, it seems like was like, are the two driving forces for, for Trey, even with his, with his family and with his mom and dad and stuff. So, um, it was, it was overall, it was obviously very intimate. It was eye opening. It wasn't like, yeah, no bombshells, nothing like salacious, but you know, Trey's obviously a complex person. And I think, you know, a, a really prolific artist. And so, you showing the process of how like this music and interpersonal stuff comes together and, and his just like infectious enthusiasm and energy is really cool. It made me appreciate him and his, and his work even more than I did already. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Hopefully it makes its way to Netflix or Amazon or something soon. So the rest of us can check it out. 
Yeah, I hope so. I would assume that people will be able to see it in the next several months, right? I guess maybe they're shopping it around to other film festivals and see like what happens next. I, I think that's a big purpose of showing the films at these festivals that like, um, I don't know how much happens with Tribeca, but I know like Sundance is basically just like a, you know, opportunity for the distributors to buy the films that are being shown. So hopefully that was uh, part of their motivation. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I hope I hope more people can see it. Sweet. Well, we should talk about this uh, live fish release that came out. Yeah, that really, I don't know. We, we have been, um, it's been suggested that we do an episode about like the top shows that should be released and not sure, Matt, if this would be on your list before it came out and, and is it, is it okay to be on the live fish release list now that you've listened to it a few times? (laughs) Yeah, I, um, I wouldn't have put this at the top of my list, um, Number one, it's not a show that I was like super familiar with outside of the Haley's Jam uh, before this, but also I was a little surprised that they don't necessarily go for shows where there's like the big jam has already been uh, sort of put out there. And this Haley's comment was on one of the From the Archives, um, you know, broadcasts that, that Kevin Shapiro did. So um, interesting that they that they went for it. Although I, I think as we'll discuss, there's a lot more than that jam uh, as, as far as great reasons to release it. Um, and it was great to see them. Uh, I always love it when they do a multi-track remix of the show and, and put the effort into, um, to, you know, to making it sound great and, uh, you know, really putting their, their all into, uh, into getting it out there. So, um, and, and, and by the way, I mean, this is the second month in a row that we had an archival release, uh, which is awesome because maybe, maybe they're going more in the direction of like what Bruce Springsteen does with nugs where they release a new archival show the first Friday of every month. I'd, I'd love to see these things continue. Yeah, totally. It's, it's fun to see. And it's cool. They'd like 91 and 98, they could go back in the middle wherever. Um, the, the thing you mentioned about the, the, um, from the archives release, there is this mix that circulates, which I don't know, I'm sure you've seen Matt called ambiance 98 with like a bunch of tracks from 98 that are soundboard somehow. And this is, it's on there too. And I, I, I wonder if there's a lot more 98 out there than we, than we know about. Yeah, I guess I think a lot of them have come from these from the archives releases. Uh, and, and I know okay. that that ambience thing was that was a fan project, so they probably yeah. just just grabbed it from there. But um, there's a yeah, there's a good number of '98 shows out there. Uh, you know, the Hampton comes alive, obviously, and um, you know the uh, there's at least one or two others in the live fish Portland Meadows. Yeah. I think a couple, yeah, a couple other Prague, shows. Yeah, Prague, Prague yeah. Worcester. Yeah, I guess there are a lot. Maybe those were all. You think those are all from releases? I thought some of those were unreleased. I guess uh, yeah. most of them are. I don't know. I haven't list- I've listened to that that collection once long ago. I I, I can't really remember it, but um, yeah, I think there's a good amount of stuff that that circulates out there. So, so Matt, you said that um, multi-track release, and I don't, I didn't know what that means until you explained it to me. Do you, is there like a, is there a one to two minute explanation of what that means? Yeah, if you're if you're unclear on the difference or what that means, um, when fish shows happen, or I, I guess I can talk about at the time that this was happening. Paul Languedoc would be recording, making sort of two separate recordings. Um, one is just a straight up stereo capture of the mix that's being sent to the PA system, or maybe like a slightly tweaked version of that, maybe with like a little bit more audience noise or something that's usually referred to as the reference mix uh, or two track mix. Um, that's just kind of captured on the fly and it's not necessarily mixed specifically for recording or anything like that. Um, traditionally that's what is most, uh, most usually 
put out as a live fish release um, for a lot of these archival releases, but also for when they started putting out the live fish releases in 2003 for, for every single show. Um, it would just be that, that live two track mix that they would capture and put out. Um, and so that's why it's sometimes, you know, the balance is a little bit off when you listen to it. Sometimes they sound really dry without a lot of audience noise or room noise in them. Um, but you do get, you know, the clarity that comes from just having, having that. But at the same time, they would do a multi-track recording and that's what you do in uh in, in a studio in a recording studio is you record every single little element on its own so every single mic that's on the drums has its own channel that you can in you know individually make louder or quieter or equalize or whatever and so they would do they would record all of those inputs just like they get sent to the soundboard for paul to mix the live sound um to like a pro tool session or something like that um, so that you'd have all of those little elements and they don't always go back to those, but, and, and, and I've never kind of understood the rhyme or reason for which shows they use each approach. Um, but sometimes they'll do this type of release where they, instead of just releasing the, the two track or stereo version that we knew from before, they actually will go back to the multi-tracks, take them into or into a studio. Uh, and in this case, John Altschiller, who was doing the live fish, uh, mixes up until a couple of years ago, will sit with it in the studio for for, for some time and actually mix it to sound good at home. Um, and so we get that here. So that's why if you compare this to some of the other releases, like there's a lot more audience noise and the, the drums are EQ'd and the vo vocals are EQ'd different, differently than you, you would normally hear them. Um, the idea being that you're, you're going to get more of a sort of professional uh, sounding uh, release here. Got it. Okay, cool. And those, like the number of tracks is like infinite at this point, right? Like it used to be a, four track or eight track or whatever and but now it seems like it's like you can have there's hundreds of tracks if, yeah if you're doing something digital with like pro tools or like you know logic pro or something i mean you yeah you can have as many tracks as your computer can handle you mixing it at one time i think they probably for their inputs they probably have somewhere around 48 tracks or so um which you could actually capture on tape machines but um it, it's a little bit more limited because they're not you know endlessly adding layers and layers and layers you're just limited to whatever inputs are you know coming to you from the stage got it cool so i guess maybe we should do a quick kind of rundown i mean obviously this show is, has always been about the Haley's, but giving given the kind of release and and we should say of course you can listen to this on on live fish and you should um and we should mention of course that um though we're talking about the live fish release as usual uh, our clips that we'll have uh, included here are from a great audience recording the first set, Matt, what are, what are some of your kind of highlights? Um, we start off with punch you in the eye, which is always a, a great energetic way to start the night. This gumbo was the first surprise for me. Um, mm -hmm. very, very early in the show, you get this gorgeous jam that comes out of the back end of it. Um, somewhat in line with, uh, some of the more ambient 98 sounds. Um, but, uh, I, I thought this was a very surprising point. Um, what'd you, what'd you think about the gumbo? Yeah. I mean, this is like one of the things that could get overlooked, right? And what, why these releases are cool. You might not like listen to this gumbo otherwise. Um, if you're listening to an audience version or, or, or whatever, like you might just jump straight to the Haley's, but given that the sound is so good and like that, it's a kind of a special release. You go back and you're like, Oh wow, this was, this was really cool. So songs like this, I think are what, what these releases are about. And it's like really nice, nice jam. Their band is really tight. It just reminds you how amazingly, um, practice they were at that point with the jamming you know 
the one-two punch of, uh, no, no pun intended, of punch you in the eye and then this gumbo <laughs> gets you off to a great start. And then uh, If You Need a Fool is a tune that I wish they would play more. I mean, I, I love Bluegrass Fish and um, this was a, a great, great, great song that, uh, that I think they only played like three times, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, Jonathan, if he were here, would say that it's cool and that, you know, you should always, you should always suggest that they play more bluegrass. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, I think only the second Del McCurry song that they, that they played and, uh, yeah, really, you know, it's a good one. And, and one of the only ones that, that Trey sings too, right. In terms of bluegrass. Yeah. Although, um, interesting that, you know, Mike usually sings them, but Trey actually does sing both of the, the Del McCurry tunes. And as we know, he's, and you established when you talked to Ronnie McCurry a couple of weeks ago, uh, for the drop, um, Trey's a huge, huge, uh, fan of the, of the McCurry family and, and friends with him as well. Yeah. That's a really, that's a good point. I, I forgot about the beauty of my dreams. Or yeah. what, what is it? Is it yeah. beauty of my dreams? Beauty of yeah. my dreams. And then blue and lonesome, uh, which is not a Dell tune, but kind of gets associated with Dell, uh, cause of his, his playing with Bill Monroe, uh, is another one that when they've done that Trey will sing it as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Then there, there's a sleep there, which uh, you know, not not played very often. Yep, and one of my one of my favorite of those um, kind of quieter tunes. Uh, tough to pull that off in, in a twenty thousand seat arena, but they do it here, I think, because the the set is going so well. Uh, and then you've got more delicate beauty, but a little bit more enthusiasm from the crowd when uh, when they play Tila. Yeah. And they had played it a, a couple times in, in 98. I guess this was the third time of four times they would play it in 98. And then at the end of, you know, the, the last time they played it in 98, they would not play it again until December 30th of 2009. So the 98 people were, you know, in, in for a treat. By the way, I should have gone to the show. I was at the two or three shows after Brad was at the three shows before. So I think this probably was skipped. Um, tour wise because they were going from chicago to cleveland and grand rapids was sort of a jaunt northward i know that you don't do midwest geography but (laughs) but if you wanted to go to grand rapids you'd have to go from chicago north and then you know kind of trek all the way back down to cleveland so i think probably a lot of people just went straight to cleveland to chicago because it's such a or chicago to cleveland because it's just such a straight shot yeah and it was like a wednesday night too right yep wednesday in grand rapids one of the best woohoo um, the birds of a feather was uh, they. I mean, at this point, like the set could have gone either way. Although it was, like you said, it was going well, but a few slow songs in a row could have kind of fizzled out or, or ended on a low note. But the birds of a feather is pretty insane. Oh, it's. I mean, it sounds like Trey's on fast forward. It's nuts. Like just pure hellfire from him the whole time, shredding away. Um, birds can. I don't know. I love the song, but live sometimes it can be hit or miss because it seems like they struggle to find a place to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is just amazing, and you get a, a preview of what Fishman's going to do in the second set uh, with the Haley's and Ghost Jams because he is just pounding away at the skins. It's amazing.
Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And then there's a there's a theme and Julius. I think it's fine. Good. Good. Um, Fishman again here in the Julius, just swinging like crazy. Um, I love I love the song Julius, and uh, no matter where it is in the show, it's uh it's pretty awesome. So a pretty good first set, and then they they obviously this as we said this is like all about the second set and all about this Haley's for the most part. Um, Jonathan's not here, so I'm just gonna do a, a dramatic reading of his notes just just to get us started. Jonathan says. Holy hell, that's a jam. Heavy, propulsive, shoegazy, and awesome. What do you say about that, Matt? Is that right? I agree. <laughs> this is one of my favorite fish jams of all time, and I think part of that is that it just doesn't it doesn't stop, you know? I mean, you could probably talk more about the, the sections and what actually happens, but it's just, man... It's it, it's it never slows down. No, it doesn't. And it's I call it dance party fish. Um, mm-hmm. You're not this isn't it, it doesn't go many places. So you're not going to sit down with headphones for like a super heady listen to, you know, discover the, the wonders of improv here. But um, if you want to put it put on some fish at a party to get things moving, this would be a good choice. Uh, it, it grooves really hard, you know, except for a section um, maybe around 11 to 13 minutes where. Uh, Trey drops back and plays some rhythm um, and gives some space to, to Paige and Mike. It actually almost sounds like the Island Tour um, version of Twist, uh, that, that like section.
it's just this driving rhythm from Fish. He's wailing away on the ride cymbal really hard. Um, and it just, it's almost like a Krautrocky kind of thing that I feel like it points towards where they're going to go in 99, um, away from the ambient stuff in 98 and into this just sort of churning grooves that, that we explored when we looked at 99. Um, but it, it just, it's relentless. I think the only thing that you could maybe dock points off it for is that it gets a little bit ripcorded into simple, but I feel bad even saying that because it's like, can you call something a ripcord after 25 minutes of just this amazing groove and incredible playing by everybody? Yeah, I don't think, I, th- I feel like there should be a time limit on what you can call a ripcord. Like, you know, <laughs> t- like a 10 to 12 minute, you know, tweezer jam that goes into you know, something that you don't want to hear, like that's, that's fine. But 25 minutes of, of frenetic music is, uh, I just, I don't think that's fair, but, but I, yeah, it goes, uh, it goes, uh, rather abruptly into simple, but if this, if this jam doesn't like get you moving and, and get you rocking, then fish might not just might not be the band for you. That's all I can say. But the simple is again, back down into like this really lovely kind of place where, uh, a couple of those songs were in the first set. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the gumbo and what happened there when it sort of gives way at the end, except that um, Paige and Fish drop out and you just get the interplay between Trey and Mike, which like 
sounds like it's going down to nothing. And Trey makes the interesting decision to go into walk away. It's kind of a curveball, but it, it works well. And I think it's a good way to keep the energy of the setup um, instead of kind of getting to like a mid mid second set slump or, or cool down section. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the kind of, yeah, the rocking walk away goes into limb by limb, which I think is always like sort of in between. It's not, it's not a cool down necessarily. It's not a ballad, but it's, it's pretty chill, but this is, um, this one gets a little more, um, I think that 98, 99 sound that you were describing, you hear that a little bit in here and it's really cool. They're, they're clearly like continuing to try to dive into that feeling in multiple points. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and limb by limb is probably one of the songs that, um, definitely benefits from the speed at which they were able to play songs, uh, at this point. Um, the absolutely bonkers drum part that Fishman has to play becomes even more bonkers when he's playing it at, you know, 25% faster than the recorded version. <laughs> right. Um, it's just like a really, that's a really, it's a good version. I think a lot of the 98, um, versions of the song are good. I think it was played quite a lot in this, in the summer of 98 too. Yeah. So then we get uh circus comes and then back, back to the, the ghost, the ghost is, um, man, the ghost is awesome. It is. And you, um, we've talked about how fast they were playing some of the songs in this show. You have the exact opposite with this, which the ghost is slow and it's sexy and it has that long drawn out intro. And, um, it's cool because the, uh, the jam gets to, I feel like a very similar place to the Haley's where it's just kind of like driving forward with fish on the ride. Um, and, and Mike doing some great, uh, groovy bass lines underneath, but because it starts out slow and quiet, it gives them some space to build to that rather than just like going right out of the gate with his balls to the wall rock the way that they did, uh, with Haley's. Yeah, it's just so funky, and it's not like you don't really hear the funk in this uh, show at all until the the, the closer. And, and you wouldn't have expected this if you had been there, probably, that, that Ghost would have come at the very end of this amazing show. Yeah, this, and you mentioned the funk. This is one area where um, the recording definitely benefits from the, the multi-track remix because um, Mike's, Mike's bass is super prominent, and the, his slapping uh, at the beginning of the jam um, is very, very prominent. Uh, it brought very forward and uh, kind of sets the stage well for, uh, for the way that they're going to build the jam.
Yeah, I think like the seventh time I listened to this, I was thinking about in contrast to now when Ghost is like a, a pretty fast paced rocker, you know? Um, this is just like, it's so slow in a, in a really good way. Yeah, we, I mean, there's been like multiple eras of Ghost in the way that they've played it. And this, uh, you know, around the album release of Story of the Ghost, when they were playing it close to the album version, um, these versions are amazing. Because once again, when they start off kind of so slow and moody, it gives them a lot of room to build rather than, you know, the way it is now, which is like a rocker or the way that it was when it first started, which was just like a, a funk jam. Yeah. And then the, the, I mean, the encore contact and Rocky Top into Funky Bitch is fine. Fish encores for the most part are, I think, fine. You know, I don't, it's, it's not that often that I'm like, you know, excited about an encore. It's fun. I'm sure being there, this was, yeah. this was super fun. I mean, three songs, um, all energetic contact is always fun. There was, there would be people bitching about this today, but, um, I'm in the school that like, when you play two sets as great as these first and second sets, like who cares what they do in the encore? Yeah. I mean, but they could have just walked, they could have just turned the lights on after ghosts. Yeah. I've been like, that's all we can do. Yep. Yep. People would have bitched about that too, but you know, true. whatever. Oh man. There were people to send each other, send each other letters about it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so a really good release. They, I think it was a good choice. I hope, like you said, Matt, at the beginning of this conversation, I hope they, they do this more often. It'd be really awesome if we could get one of these every month or two. Yeah. It's nice, especially when they're kind of unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they they seem to come out of nowhere, although this this time they build it up a little bit more the day before, kind of advertised it and play parts on uh, on jam on and stuff. Um, but it's it's cool. Like, you know, you just middle of the afternoon one day, it's like, boom, new fish show. It's great. Yeah. Well, this is, as I mentioned, this is one of my favorite jams. I'm really glad that it's out there and I'm going to keep going back to it because that uh, the, the, the mix of it is is really pretty special. So. Um, are you, if they ever had this on vinyl, Matt, would you buy it? Uh, yeah, maybe for the collectible aspect, but that's a, that's a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's our self-help, self-help podcast. Um, cool. All right, Matt. So we'll let people get back to their, their Wednesdays. Um, if you, if you haven't yet check out the, the most recent episode of under the scales from Monday, which Matt did a great job of stepping in and editing and and doing all the fancy work on it to make it sound amazing. Good work, man. Oh, thank you. It was fun. I enjoyed working on that. It was good. It was, I hope, I hope Tom does more of those because I think hearing his thinking about the lyrics is, is fascinating. It makes me like appreciate the lyrics even more. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, it's also interesting to me that like somebody who he's known for so long and is so close to as Tebow, um, doesn't have all this info and it's it's interesting to it's you know after all this time to hear him kind of get clued into uh some of the some of the stuff because he loves the music so much too yeah exactly yeah yeah it was really fun so check that out if you haven't and um i think we'll i think we'll leave it there we're going to be back with more episodes obviously because we're we're just getting started here in in episode 154 um i feel like we're, we're hitting a groove matt just like that just like that slow sexy ghost you know just building it just building it um so send us your thoughts and feedback um twitter facebook email websites wherever send us letters um send it to matt's p.o box but um keep keep it coming thanks for uh you know always interacting with us and giving us feedback we appreciate it and also if you haven't yet please give us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts we're on spotify we're on a bunch of stuff so check out wherever you listen to podcasts give us a review so that more more people can uh, find out what we're up to 
All right, we'll leave it there. We'll see you guys again soon, and thanks for listening. Keep on rocking. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Grey Street.